Coyote Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. Shack Attack have enjoyed a level of success and career longevity rarely paralleled in contemporary music. Because of the nature of their music, their fan base is one that is far-reaching while always retaining an underground element. This paradox sees a band who are known primarily as serious jazz or funk musicians enjoying both high cult status and instant recognition as a household name. After a number of successful top 20 singles in the UK, the band went on to score unprecedented international success with the release of the classic Nightbirds recording, and the title track has now become a standard in the popular music repertoire. This success was repeated with top 10 hit Down on the Street, and the award-winning video established the band's personnel of Jill Sayward, Bill Sharp, Keith Winter, George Anderson, and Roger O'Dell. With the Magic El Jero Shack Attack combination, the group went on to record the track day by day to further international acclaim. Along with this successful recording career, Shack Attack had firmly established themselves as a vibrant live act, combining astute musicianship with a sense of fun that communicated strongly with the worldwide audiences. Their performance in Japan's Budokan Hall won them a silver award at the Tokyo International Song Festival. Other awards include the Best Instrumental Album for six consecutive years, and other live concerts of note have been the East Meets the West Border concert at the time of the German reunification and the open-air concert in Cape Town for the Millennium Celebrations where they played in front of 250,000 people. Shack Attack performed regularly in the UK, Europe and the Far East and released CDs almost annually. There are also DVD releases available, proving there is still an insatiable demand for the unique Shack Attack sound. Up next on Celebs Front, we've got Jill Sayward from Shack Attack. Where do we find you in the world? What's happening in your life? Okay, uh, a couple of days ago, I arrived back into my hometown, which is uh, in Sardinia. I'm in a place called Martyrs in Sardinia, and it's a little village in the middle of nowhere, and no traffic, no people, just sheep and countryside, and it's my paradise. Wonderful. So are you the only people living there? In this area, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Me and my partner. And uh, we did one of these things where you go to, you buy a derelict house and renovate it. And okay. Go through all the traumas. It was a similar, in fact, we should have videoed the whole thing because uh, it was quite horrific, a lot of it, you know. But now we have a, a beautiful, very, very old house and just countryside and mountains and sheep. No offence to anyone listening. No humans is the best. <laughs> I think when you, as you get older, you realise you don't need so many humans in your mm. life, just a few that really matter. And you dedicate all of your time and love to them. And that's all you need. I've often said I'm an alien from another planet, been sent down yeah. to this planet so I can go back to my planet and tell them what not to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that. I think we're yeah. of the same mentality. You yeah. know, we have the same sort of thing. And it, sometimes I feel like I have landed into, especially when I'm in shopping malls and things, I walk around thinking, What's this about? I don't understand why mm. people are doing this. You know, I, yeah. I do feel like an ape, definitely. <laughs> so, Jill, let's rewind. Let's go back to the beginning of your journey into the entertainment industry. So at what age did you decide, cool, this mm-hmm. is my path? And then how did that evolve into the journey with Shack Attack? My goodness me, you're going back a long way here. <laughs> but be careful. Discriminate myself. But, yeah, I mean, I started at 14, 15 years old professionally. Okay. I was at school, but they they were unaware that I was touring. You know, I got into a lot of trouble with it, but I was doing gigs. 
mm. and going back to school in the morning. So it was a jazz rock band called Fusion Orchestra. Okay. And they, they we were quite we were pioneers because although I was very young, I had this vision of being something completely different to a, a female vocalist in a rock band. I was I made myself very pretty, very very flowery and yes. singing with guts and you know aggression and it was unusual because most of the rock singers girl rock singers at that time were jeans looking hard like Joplin thing you yeah. know very macho so I broke the mold and of course as as a result of that the stage act evolved it became very well known for being quite explicit at times but it was quite revolutionary and of course the music the album was a concept album a long sort of heavy rock album which did very very well and it saw us on the road for about five years you know, and we had a deal with EMI, so we were backed up, and then it it just fizzled out in the end. You know, band members left, and I got fed up with it, and I thought, mm, I'm not really a heavy rock singer. I'm going to sort of do something else and move on. You know, so that's where it started, and then I moved into like um, gigging with different bands, and then gigging with a band called the Northern Lights, who were a huge ensemble in London that did cover shows in these places called Mecca. Which okay. they, they were dance places where you would gather and big band, like an earth, wind and fire, full, full brass, everything you can imagine. And that was okay. amazing because I did my apprenticeship there really because, um, we also did cover albums, which were these cheap albums you could buy in the UK where you copied the, the artist, pretended you were them and they sold it at a budget price. But they, these, these albums are now extremely collectible. These albums we did and it included Roger. Odell on drums and Bill sometimes because they were all session players. So we all yeah. knew each other. So that's how the sort of incestuous meetings got together. You know, we, everyone knew everyone. So when a vocalist was needed for this idea of some jazz funk, I was around. I was there in the studio. So that's it's how, you know, Shaka started brewing, you know. It's interesting you mentioned those records. So in South Africa at the time, there was apartheid. So there, you right. know, obviously there was sanctions. So the artists wouldn't have their stuff played. So then local artists would do the cover versions of their songs and it would be on a pop shop number one. And But we were thinking yeah. it was the real artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was an eternal disappointment to people that bought it because, I mean, they used to cost a pound. You know, they were mm. 99p and they, they always had a picture of a woman on the front. Yes, in a costume. Dressed. I must yes, have the costume. same sort of thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, though all those sessions were done live with orchestras, mm. and you'd walk in the morning, and I'd be singing Donna Summer or something, or Debbie yeah. Harry, and everything had to go down live. It was a union agreement, you yeah. know. So you'd do like twelve tracks a day, and you needed to know your stuff. So for for me, and of course Roger and the, everyone involved, it's serious homework, which. A lot of bands don't get a chance to do anything like that anymore. You know, that's that's an apprenticeship and a half. Wow. So, like, you had to do 12 different genres or ty- uh, type of songs yeah. in one day, in one take? Yeah, in, in one take. Yeah, because there was a full string section and brass section, and they didn't like to be overdubbed because the union says you can only play this song once. Okay. And if you dub the, the orchestra again, then it's, they get double money. So we just have to oh, fiddle around okay. with things, you know. So they don't want to pay um, extra. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes, I mean, there's a little bit of spell we went on, but yeah, that, it literally was, I remember doing the Carpenters, Carling Up, what was that, Interplanetary? Yes. With a full yeah. orchestra up and everything, thinking, I must not mess this up. You know, yeah, and it's so nerve, so nerve-wracking because you're in this booth with all the whole orchestra outside. Yeah. It's a wake-up call, and it was a fantastic experience to, to be able to get into the voice. And, you know, people like Abba at the time, their songs sounded 
so simple mm. but when you broke it down you're doing yes. all the vocals and everything about it it was work of art you know all these layers and double tight double tracking and of course everything in that time contributes to everything i do now it's just invaluable you mentioned mm. abba so i remember watching a documentary that uh, Agneta and Frida have, I think if I'm correct, they have a four octave range, both of them. So yep. you got them to sing and people think that they're quite simple songs, but when you actually, like mm. you said, construct mm. them, they're very, very cha- uh, difficult and extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, Ag- Agnetha, when they're singing something like Dancing Queen, yeah, yes. this is what you call, it's full voice. There's no, um, head voice, no, Soprano. There's no okay, um, okay. Yeah, head yeah. Uh, falsetto. Is the word yeah. It's full, full singing, and she's got a really high register. And and of course, you had to do it like that, and then track it. And then I had to be Frida as well, and then yes. track it. And honestly, and you know, when we did albums of ABBA, the whole album, you know, like Top of the Pop sings ABBA. Yes. Top of the Pop sings a summer. Top of the Pop sings. Manhattan transfer and that. So it was a vast amount of work, well paid as well for the time. But as I say, I don't think you could get a better experience than that. I'm sure it allowed you to learn music quickly. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't read music. My reading music skills are pretty Mm. rough. And fortunately, the band, the band leader that did all these things could tolerate that because I have a good ear and I could learn things mm. quite quickly. But to do sometimes if they had, uh, they had like three girls come in and they just turn up and read, you know, the dots. I think, wow, no, and they, they were good at that. You know, toward, towards the end when it got quite complicated, it needed to be done quicker. We got back and vocalists in, but yeah, okay. no, I don't read any, I don't read music very well. So it's, it's pretty challenging. Okay. So let's get back to Shack Attack. So you joined the guys. Why the name Shack Attack? Well, because I remember, um, before, you know, carrying on from the sessions, when we'd done this shakataki idea that mm. was um, initiated by Nigel Wright, who was a part of the band as well, part of the Nicky North band. And he had this, he'd been to the States, he said, there's this great new movement coming along, it, suggesting the sort of music that, you know, we might give it some writing a try and get into a, a demo. And the demo was creating a lot of um, interest, you know, because it went out as a white label all over the, all over the UK. Okay. So they're saying, who, who is this band? And we didn't have a name. So one of the companies that were helping us put the records out to the DJs was the Record Shack in London. So I think it was Roger said, well, Shack is great, Shack. And I don't know who thought of the attack, but the Record Shack were responsible for the name, the beginning part. Okay. And uh, the attack came with it. So it was a record shop that helped us. Oh, well, that's interesting. From that journey from joining to the journey of Shack Attack, how has it evolved? Why do you still enjoy doing it? Let's dive into that <laughs> world. <laughs> to be honest, we evolved through us being session players. That, that literally was it. We didn't all get together. And, 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 and it was masterminded by Nigel Wright, who knew us all as session players. And he had an inkling of what was going on in the industry. And it was, it was, it was his idea. And it was down to Roger suggesting we bring Bill into the fold because mm. he was working a lot with Bill. And Nigel, I was working with a girl called Jackie Raw doing sessions. She she did some vocals with me with Jack Attack as well. So that evolved through these cover sessions mm. and through the work we were doing as session players. And then it got to a point where uh, we thought, well, we, we need a bass player who's not one of the session players. Yes. So, because things were getting a little serious, I thought, hold on, let's, let's try and think about the act here. 
because the record was gaining momentum. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we got Georgian auditions, Georgian, and it felt more like a unit. And of course, you know, he was a different type of player. He had this Brit funk, jazz funk vibe, and that seemed to work. And it just it evolved quicker than I could have ever imagined. You know, I I, I thought that the the rise up was incredibly lucky and very quick myself. And at that time, I was just a backing vocalist anyway. I wasn't I wasn't a formerly a member of the band. The guys were the hardcore of the band, and I was just doing backing vocals with Jackie. You know, and I was okay. there the whole time. Yeah, behind me. But I was watching from afar, and I was still doing a lot of other work for other people. But I was in the studio with the guys putting down some ideas, and I do remember listening to it, thinking to myself, "I'm going to stay with this. I'm not going to go and do any more sessions for anybody else." I just got a feeling in my tummy: this Mm. is this boat is sailing, and I need to be on it. I've been waiting a long time, and I really did. I really knew it was happening. I knew it was going to happen. So I think uh, if you didn't maybe pitch up for all of them, you would have possibly have been involved more, do you think? In the beginning, well, no, in the beginning, it was primarily an instrumental. If you listen to our okay. other tracks, it was, it was mainly instrumental with embellished vocal. You know, yes. Just a few bits of, a bit, bits of vocal. That was, that was the American, that was the idea initially that Nigel had to get this sort of, you know, this funky with just distant vocals. So... There was no room for me to be predatory in the beginning. I just sort of laid low and did what they wanted me to do. Um, but then, of course, there were so many years, two or three years of the instrumental. And it was a while, quite a while till we introduced a vocal into the stage okay. show. And that's okay. when it changed a bit. That's so when I became muscled Why in. the choice to introduce voice? What was the inspiration behind that? Well, we were reluctant. They were reluctant at first because... Apart from taking off in the UK, um, you know, the, the actual beginning of Shaftet was gathering momentum. Um, we discovered that it also become like wildfire in Japan. And obviously there's no language issues. The first oh, okay. album was very he- heavy with just a few lines of English that the Japanese understood. Mm-hmm. So we were very reluctant to change that formula. But after three or four albums in, it was starting to sound a bit dinky dinky piano and here. Comes and so we, you know, I think the record company said, "Yeah, let's move on a little bit," and we yeah. we're always aware of that. And by the time we got in three, two or three albums, we were having problems. Jackie wanted to leave. Jackie Raw wanted to leave because she was doing a lot of real big sessions for other people. Mm. We tried a few other girl singers, and there were problems with the girls. And girls don't generally want to stand there and be a backing vocalist. They yeah. want to do something. So a lot of them got dissatisfied with that situation and left. And I remember Roger or Bill saying, you know, just, we've got a track here. Jill, you go and do, do it and we'll, you know, we'll see how it goes. And we mm. may not bother getting somebody else. And we did a song called Dark is the Night. Dark is the Night. It was just me. And then that was really successful. It was, we were, we weren't sure how it would go. Yeah. So that obviously it was, it was still an instrumental vocal, but it was a solo vocal. So after that hit, it was decided, well, just, just carry on. We'll just chill. And if we need some, to do a big tour, we'll get two extra backing vocal singers yeah. and keep it as a main five piece, you know. And that's what, that's what happened. So you just stuck around in the background until you could take foreground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wasn't, I wasn't, I was never a, a pushy, but you know, when I did get the opportunity, I was, I was ready for it. Definitely. Exactly. Ready for exactly. It. But I mean, yeah. just being there was, you know, they looked at you and said, okay, Jill's, yeah, let's do it. Compared to if you weren't yeah. there all the time, then they might have thought of someone else or. Absolutely. You know. well, we did have 
guest vocalists on the album. So lots of lots of vocalists that you know that were ready, but not really interested in the band. But I just had a feeling. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been in, like you say, my history goes back to when I'm 15 years old. I've got intuition, re things happening, and I stuck with it. I really did know it was going to be something. I didn't want to miss it. You know. Exactly. Yeah. So then you focus on it and manifest it. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that couple of years when it was just instrumental, were you doing the singing parts or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was singing and, uh, on, on stage. I play percussion mainly as well okay, because, okay. which is great. And I, I enjoy the percussion. I've got conkers and timbales and mm. stuff because otherwise you're standing around just. Yes. You know, picking your <laughs> yes. fingers. So I thought, I want to play conkers. I thought, yeah. and I enjoyed it tambourines and we all played bits and that and that helped because the instrumentals in those days they used to be quite the show was quite long and the instrumentals were long too and yeah. um in-depth musical band didn't have much variety re- lead vocals and things at that point so i was glad that i could do something else so did the other backing singers also do instruments or were they just standing there waving their arms they were waving arm jobs i think jackie had a few tambourines and things okay. and played. No, but I, I, I bought a kit of Congas. I'd always mm. played congas. I played congas and that infusion. I just thought I bought a better set of congas. It looked yes. better. And it was nice. And I still hide behind them today. They're, they're lovely. They hide everything. <laughs> <laughs> so when you guys decided to start using voice in the songs, how, how did that creative process come to be? Was it all you writing the music lyrics together or was it someone else? And is that still happening currently today? As I say, Dark is the Night was the first toe in the water, read the yes. vocal situation. And after that, that was accepted graciously. And mm. the guy suggested, what about doing a club of song? Let's see how Polydor, the record company, would take that. You know, now people know that Jill's out front doing something. Mm. And we took that. And, that, you know, the rest is history. It was yeah. like, wow, okay. And it was a huge hit. And there was a visual point. You know, there was Bill. It was, all of a sudden there was, oh, the blonde girl in Shack Attack, the blonde girl. Where's yes. the outrageous yeah. in tight clothes? That, that that was a good move. That added to the whole kudos of Shack Attack. We were still, we still kept the instrumentals. We still kept the vocal numbers dispersed, and 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 it kind of works. That took it onto another another leg. So, what was the what was the second half of your question? I remember the first half. That so I got into it. Are you guys yeah. still creating music currently? And is the process? Oh the same yeah. as, the, as Oh my you, goodness me! Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and at that point, actually, I I did come up with a couple of ideas songwriting wise yeah so that opened it opened another gate because george did a bit of writing and i suggested on what the one of the albums down the street album, i think it was yeah. um i've got this little song you know how about this and yeah producer and nigel said wow love it love this so that was foot in the door <laughs> barraging through the door yeah. i was thrilled you know, i got a song on the album and of course after that everybody you know the rest of the band go, well why can't we have songs on the album it's all right yeah. But it's always the band. We keep, we keep the writing, the five of us, mm. before it, as it was then. It gives it another lease of life. You know, yes. it does another angle. When we all think it's over, it just it keeps starting again. And that's what was happening. It was now starting down another road, you know. It's a journey, not a destination. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what they say about secretaries. Well, you're a secretary. Secretaries spend their life traveling, never arriving. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. But sometimes I'm... Six months ahead of the rest of the world and wondering why no one's caught up to me yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm there. I'm there with you. What do you enjoy about still performing live? What is an inspiration to keep getting back on that stage? 
Uh, do you know, if I knew that, I just I just can't explain it. And I was talking to my partner about that because I just arrived back from uh, some shows in the UK. Mm. I don't know what's happening here. It seems uh, since COVID, there's a new lease of life in the audience. There's mm. freshness. Yes. And I think that's where you're going. I think having new material dispersed in the, in the show, mm. every so often we put a new number in. We're creating new albums all the time. You know, we, every two or three years, we're... We're still with a major label, JVC, and, mm. and they still put out fine albums. And that's what keeps it fresh. If there wasn't the JVC interest and JVC releases, you know, we, we'd, we'd end up just being a, tri- you know, a tribute band playing our own yes. stuff, hits yeah. band. And we've avoided that. We've done a few shows in the past that have been, you know, uh, where you just go through the hits, yeah. 80s nights and stuff. Mm. But we've managed to avoid an awful lot of them. And that keeps us fresh too, because... Every gig we do, we say, well, should we do this number that we did in 1985? And, yeah, let's give it a go. And suddenly, yeah. wow, that works. Yeah. And that keeps it fresh. You've got such a great repertoire of work. So every tour, when you're creating a new tour, you say, okay, we can add that song from there, that song from there. These are popular yeah. songs. Mix it up. Yeah. Or get the audience to, because we have a huge following on uh, Facebook and all mm. social platforms. And we interact with the fans a lot. You know, because that's what you do it now, isn't it? And yeah. there's a lot of people said, you know, once you get five or six people tie up, well, I remember this song, da 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 da, and I'll listen to it and I think, I've listened to this guy, should we do that? I mean, the perfect example of that was the last Japan tour mm. last year. Um, somebody had mentioned a song called My Utopia, and we never played it in our lives and that. And, and I thought, well, I'll have a listen to it. When I listened to it, I went, oh, this is excellent. It's, it was so Japanese. It's ding, 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 ding. It's, it's just got a Japanese vibe. Yeah. And it's like, you mean you put your hands up in the air and that. So we tried it and there was, wasn't an awful lot of enthusiasm in the band to do it. Well, give it a go. And then Bill is so good on the stage. And he said, you know, we're not sure about this. But it's, it's a number that a lot of fans have asked about. And somebody had mailed me for the lyrics and mm. it had been mentioned a few times. So we said, so we're going to try it out on you guys tonight. And you, all you've got to do is just enjoy it and put your hands in the air. So it started the second set. So all of a sudden, you've got four or five hundred people. And at the end, it was something about back staying. That's still in the set. Yeah. They loved it. That's good. Cool. So that's really important. Really important. Yeah. So that interaction and feedback from the fans so allows you to do what they want. Yeah. <laughs> course it's fabulous, fabulous. Yeah. so i'm always a person right up front in concerts i'm dancing doing my thing and i notice mm. people around me have all got their cell phones out trying to get the perfect picture perfect video what all they're posting or tweeting from the person on the other side of that seeing all the phones instead of the faces and interactions does that bother mm. you or is it just yeah. where society is today it bothers me because as a woman you know when they're just standing at the side of the stage and or standing looking up your nose and you you know it's going to go on YouTube. I know, mm. I know it sounds vain. You see it on YouTube or you see it on Facebook. And you think, oh, my God, I look awful. And yeah. why didn't they just show and we'll get somebody professional to film exactly. it and make us look good? We, everyone moans about, you know, you know, like Bill, he can't stand having that side done. You know, so-and-so doesn't like that side. Because the audience, they get you raw and it it never looks good. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. So when I see the cameras on it, oh, no. No. Do you feel that like allows it. a disconnect with the audience as well? That the energy separation? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. We have a, a real ardent group of fans and they, I think they, they call them, so they, they say they're Egyptian gypsies and they come to see us in, in Germany in droves and they're fab, fabulous. Mm. They go crazy. Fabulous, fabulous audience. But they, 
they don't watch the show. Everything they're, they're you know they they go to the corner station. They're filming Bill's hands and that. They don't turn the phones off, so I don't know how they can enjoy the show. But they go berserk. But every time it's just filmed. Yeah, it's interesting because if you're looking through the phone, it's the same as looking at you through a TV. Whereas you yeah. real life right there, ten feet away, and they're still looking through their phones. This is so frustrating. Yeah, I know. Really crazy. Still, I don't know. Maybe if it was Stevie Wonder. And I was at the front of the stage. Maybe I'd be filming it too. Who knows? Prior to me doing celebs event, I never used to take my phones out. Now, because mm-hmm. I'm doing celebs event, I'll take my phone, but I'm like, okay, two video clips, couple of photos, then put it away and let yeah, it go. Yeah, yeah. I'm very strict. Let it go. <laughs> let it go. Yeah. Let it go. So back in the day, we had CDs, vinyls, cassettes. They're all making a massive comeback. Gratefully, I'm not sure if you're aware that. Last year alone, uh, there were 5.5 million vinyls sold, sold in the UK, yeah. the biggest since 1990. And they're all making a comeback, but they're also their streaming platforms that people listen to music on. What are your thoughts about people's consumption of music now compared to when it, what it was like before? I, my feelings are mixed. Obviously, we are, we are suffering at the hands of Spotify mm. and various other companies from a, songwriting point of view yep. it's a disaster it's a dis- everything i've worked for you know writing my work is out there free you know and i didn't expect that when i you know at the end of my career i didn't expect everybody to have everything free and there's nothing you can do about that and i'm not sure i'm clued up enough you know i know a lot of new acts know how to milk it a different way um you know with their platforms products mm. and whatever it is because i've got two i've got two sons that tell me you're not doing it right. That's why you're not earning your money, you know. So there's, it's a different world now. It's a different music world. And I, we're just not on it enough. But we try and grit our teeth and, and, you know, put up the fact that our music has to be there. There's no point mm. taking it off Spotify because nobody yeah. will listen to us. The only, the, the good thing about it is the online sales, you know, the street, the streaming sales. I mean, we still get healthy, healthy, record sales mm. accounts every quarter and think wow, what what is this you know the people are buying our product and that makes up for it because buying albums were the sales were dwindling, dwindling. and on the note about the albums that our new album is coming out in november um okay. we're printing i think it's five we're having 500 special vinyl copies done just of a select few numbers on it yes so uh we're going into vinyl. We're going Yay. back. You'll see an artist put a post on their social media. They had 500 million downloads. Yeah. Like what they don't tell the audience that they only got like a thousand dollars or something like that. So the listening, the listening audience think they're making a fortune. They don't realize that the artists are not coping with it. it it's good for the audience in a way. I mean, the audience, a win-win situation because what happens is that they get the music free and because the bands are so stifled financially, mm. there are more live bands on the road. And that's why there's so many bands from our era, you know, probably saw your future as retired, living in yeah. Hollywood somewhere, fortune, and suddenly, uh-oh, there's no residuals, there's no money anymore. I better get my ass out there and tour. And that's why there's so many bands on the road. that you, You're quite surprised. Isn't it? What are they touring for? <laughs> Didn't they make some money? And you read the answer is it is what a sudden stop in the industry to yeah. songwriters. Your work is, we're all prostitutes. You know, you know, we, we yeah. get, no, a prostitute gets paid, gets yeah. paid, isn't it? But no, we're not, we're not even that. We're just charity. I still buy myself CDs. I find it as a thank you to you guys for the hard work you do. 
I yeah. don't feel music should be free. There should be some energy exchange. So there's definitely a disconnect that's happening and needs to change somehow. So we'll have to see how that progresses. It needs to be modified. I just re- noticed they Spotify are uh, putting up their subscriptions to their punters. Quite to, a big hike is coming. And I think, okay, well, we don't see yep. anything. So you know, what, where's this hike? Where does it leave us? Mm. Probably nowhere. So speaking of songs, I know if I had to ask you this question in three days, three hours, three months, I know your answer will be different every time I ask you this question. But if you had to push play to five songs by other artists once we were finished talking, what would those songs be and by whom? The first is easy, this one. The first one, number one on my all-time list that just personifies everything about music is After the Lover's Gone, Earth, Wind & Fire. For me, it's it captures everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's my holy Bible song. That one, number one. Okay. The second one would be um, Isley Brothers, "Highways of My Life," purely because it was it was at a time where there were several roads showing, and I'm thinking, what do I see? Do I lead it to the left or the right? Whatever the <laughs> words are, it's, it's all it's all very personal. And uh, number three would be um, "I Love Your Smile" for when I had my children, when I had my son. You know, cute songs took on a different meaning. You know, yes. when you, you're looking at baby, and 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 also when I had him, I was in Japan touring, and, and my heart was broken because I just yes. left my baby at home. And every time I heard that song, I imagined his smile. So that okay. is all cheesy. It's no, all cheesy. It's, it's perfect. It's yeah. experiences. Two more songs. Laura Nairo going way way back. Let's call for the property train. Okay. It was a. It was another momentous moment because. I was starting out, in, you know, as a singer. It suddenly occurred to me that women could write songs. I'd never heard of that. And and also, the final, well, we have five, isn't that? But um, the next one is Carol King. Okay. Uh, You've got a friend. Same sort of thing. That that, those, that era of woman, women. Yes. And vocally for me, uh, Wild is the Wind, Barbara Streisand, for a vocal performance, which is timeless and with full orchestra, Purely because that's what I'd like to do one day. I'd have to do a track like that. I love it. I'm going to add them to my list. So the podcast is listened to throughout the world. As a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? Well, world, you know, we try and get around the world as much as we can. All around the world tonight, which is the name of our last album. Uh, A lot of destinations we haven't reached yet. And just give us strength and hope that we can carry on for another 40 years. (laughs) God, that'd be funny. Um, So we can... Discover the rest of the world, i.e. the United States and uh, so many places we're yet to visit, we're hoping. So, world, we will get there in the end, I promise you.